0: Who wants God to change their life this morning? I'm up here. Don't, don't expect me to change it. I don't actually have that power. But the Word of God does have that power. So let's just close our eyes, lift our hands to heaven for a moment. Lord, we thank you for your Holy Spirit. We thank you that as we open ourselves to your Spirit, then our spirits are freed, washed clean embraced, encouraged and empowered. And this morning we thank you that your word is going to bring grace, love and empowerment to those who have ears to hear and a heart to receive. In Jesus' name, everyone said, Amen. Amen. Jude is one of the shortest books in the Bible. One chapter, 24 verses. And it's very cleverly written. Because he, he crams a huge amount into those 24 verses. And uh, we're going to look today at how the book fits into the New Testament, why it was written. But first of all, let's just have a look at some of the distinctives of Jude. There are, about, there are five main distinctives that we need to look at. The first is that Jude actually has a, a unique genealogy. And we'll talk a bit about that. The second thing to realise is this is not the letter he wanted to write. That may sound a bit strange. We'll talk about that too. His letter is to a very, very, very specific demographic in the first century Christian world. And he quotes the Apocrypha and the Pseudopigraphica. Hey, sounds like one of those T-shirts, doesn't it? I know karate and other words like that. Um, <laughs> but we'll talk a bit about that as well. And the fifth and... and Really interesting and a lesson for every preacher I guess He has one point And only one point In the whole of the letter He takes a while to get there But he has one very important point So first question Who is this Jude dude? Well the funny thing is his name isn't Jude If we look at the next thing It's the book of Judah His name isn't Jude, it's Judah in both the Greek and the Hebrew. So I'm not sure why, and nobody's explained to me why it got shortened. Perhaps that was his nickname. That's how the song got written. Hey, Jude. (coughs) They got sick of saying, hey, Judah, and just shortened it. But the interesting thing is, and I'll continue to refer to him as Jude just so that I don't get confused. The, the, The second part of that is he's one of Jesus' brothers. Did you know that? Because Jesus had several brothers, um, and Jude, verse, verse 1, he starts off, this is a letter from Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. So he doesn't actually attach himself as related to Jesus, but we know that James was actually a brother of Jesus. And if we look at uh, Jesus' family tree here, we can see his brothers. He's got Jesus there, Jacob, Joseph, Simon, and Judah. You think, oh, hang on, where's James? Well, James, of course, is a, an anglicised way of saying Jacob, So they're all in there. So they're all Jesus' brothers. And uh, the interesting thing about that is that all of Jesus' brothers thought he was a fake and didn't follow him until he died and resurrected and they saw the resurrected Jesus. And then they said, Oops, our mistake. We're now going to become disciples. And all of his brothers became disciples after they saw him after the resurrection. And uh, with all of that, uh, Judah actually became well-known as a travelling teacher and missionary. So he, he's, he knows what he's... He's the brother of Jesus Christ here. And he's, he's writing this letter. So he's got, he's got the chops when it comes to, you know, who is this guy? So let's move on. The second thing we find out, Jude verse 3, this is not the letter he wanted to write. Dear friends, I have been eagerly planning to write to you about the salvation we all share. But... Now I find I must write about something else, urging you to defend the faith that God has entrusted once for all time to his holy people. So he's he's at his desk, his computer, I don't know what he's using. Probably not the computer. And he's got this this massive letter planned. He's, He's excited about salvation. He wants to write to them and suddenly he hears some news. And he turns from his computer to his laptop and he says, this is really important. I'm going to have to dash off this quick letter because this needs nipping in the bud. So this, this is just, it's like, oh, good grief. I had big plans, but anyway. And he scribbles this letter down and says, quick, get it to these guys. Now, of course, who are these guys? Who is he writing to? And we, we, we don't know. So let's not bother with that. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> we... we he writes, he, he's got a good reason for writing it. No, verse 4 says, He's writing it because some ungodly people have wormed their way into your churches, saying that God's marvelous grace allows us to live immoral lives. The condemnation of such people was recorded long ago, for they have denied our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So as you can see, he, he dances around the subject delicately. <laughs> no, first then, look. You guys are in trouble here. You've allowed people to worm their way into your lives. And so we don't know who he's writing it to, but we know their background. We know that it's probably a Messianic Jewish community uh, because reading on in his letter, it assumes a deep knowledge of the Hebrew Bible and other Jewish literature. He references a lot of people from the Old Testament that doesn't expand or expound on any of the references that he makes because he expects that they will know exactly exactly who he is talking about. And that's how he manages to keep the letter so brief because he, he mentions things, it's a bit like sort of vernacular things that, that um, you know, who's ever had two dogs lemonade? Who's ever heard of two dogs? Who knows that two dogs is not actually just two dogs? But you don't have to say that because everybody knows what you mean and it's not something I'd ever say from the pulpit anyway. Um, but he uses that sort of thing here in that he, he mentions people, but doesn't explain anything because he knows that his audience understands what he's talking about. I'm not sure everybody here did, but never mind. If you, if you expect me to explain it afterwards, then you're in for a disappointment. Okay, so this leads us into the, the next distinctive in that he, he quotes the Apocrypha and the Schutepigraphica. Took me a while to get my lips around that one. What are these things? Well, funnily enough, Jude is the only book in the New Testament that clearly references Jewish literature which is not considered by either Jews or Christians to be part of the Bible. Now, there are other things that people suspect may be referenced in other Jewish literature, but this is the only book that actually mentions characters and scenes out of books which are not the Bible. Oh, I know what you're thinking. Heresy! Heresy! And from Jesus' brother, no less. What is going on here? The Jewish people of the time had a different view about Jewish literature. They believed that the 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 what we regard as the Old Testament was the, the canon of Jewish literature, but they also had a lot of respect for what was outside of that. And in fact, I think this next slide sort of gives an idea of what their attitude was towards that. And uh, it's possibly a good sort of attitude for us to have as well, in that while the, uh, the Bible is the ultimate resource that we have, there's other good stuff out there as well. And so uh, Jude quotes from First Enoch, which details the sexual immorality of fallen angels who have sex with human women. Now you all want to read First Enoch, don't you? Uh, and he also quotes from the Testament of Moses, where there is a battle for Moses' soul between the archangel archangel Michael and Satan. Another story you haven't heard of. And although as modern Christians, we rarely see references to scriptural material outside of the Bible, it was fairly commonplace to Jude's audience. So, you know, this, this is actually good to take on board, widens our horizons a bit. But the final and fifth point is that he has one point. This is where we get the meat of the letter. To make his one point, Jude divides his letter into three main sections. He opens, as, as we've seen in verses 3 and 4, by exhorting the church to defend their faith and gives them the why. He doesn't tell them how, but he, he tells them why. I'm calling you to defend your faith. Why? Because some people have whimmed their way into your congregations and they are leading you up the garden path. They are trying to tell you that God's grace is an excuse for immoral behaviour. And he stops there. He doesn't give them the how just yet. But he goes on then to remind them of the fate of those who corrupt God's message with four distinct series of examples. Firstly, he gives three Old Testament examples of rebellion and divine justice. And starting from verse 5, he says, So I want to remind you, he's very careful, he says, I want to remind you, though you already know these things, so he's saying, look, I'm not telling you anything new here, I expect you to know this stuff, that Jesus first rescued the nation of Israel from Egypt But later he destroyed those who did not remain faithful. And I remind you of the angels who did not stay with the limits of authority God gave them, but left the place where they belonged. God has kept them securely chained in prisons of darkness, waiting for the great day of judgment. And don't forget Sodom and Gomorrah and their neighbouring towns, which were filled with immorality and every kind of sexual perversion. Those cities were destroyed by fire and serve as a warning of the eternal fire of God's judgment." And then at the end of that, he throws in uh, the bonus of an extra story from the Testament of Moses, which I'm going to leave you to read for yourself. And then he gives three Old Testament examples of rebels who corrupted others. So he's building a story here just to let people know, basically, that God has all this figured out, that that he's got a plan for people who rebel against his authority. And in verse 11 it says, What sorrow awaits them, for they fo- follow in the footsteps of Cain, who killed his brother. And like Bala- Bala- Balaam, they deceive people for money. And like Korah, they perish in their rebellion. So he's mentioned three people who have deceived other people. And then he uses a, a whole barrage of Old Testament images clouds without rain, shepherds who eat their own sheep, um, and waves that cause chaos, all from the Old Testament to indicate the, the naughtiness that surrounds these people. And then he follows that with a couple of warnings about Jesus' return and judgment. Uh, in verse 14. Uh, He he has a warning from First Enoch where he says Enoch who lived in the seventh generation after Adam prophesied about these people he said listen the Lord is coming with countless thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on the people of the world he will convict every person of all the ungodly things they have done and for all the insults that ungodly sinners have spoken against him does this remind you of anything? I mean, I know we've had Father's Day in between, but who remembers the book of Revelation? Does that sound a bit like Jesus coming again? And so here he's warning these people that immorality is going to have its payback, that Jesus is coming again. He's bringing an army of his holy followers and that the people who rebel against his authority are going to face that army. This is followed by a reminder of what Jesus and the apostles have already told them, because he, he's got a great, a great ethos going here. No surprises. Who knows that that's a good thing? Who likes surprises? There's a couple of you. Who's prepared to say they hate surprises? You see, it's a good ethos to have. A lot of most people hate surprises, or at least bad ones. <laughs> and so, in in verse 17, he says, "But you, dear friends, must remember what the apostles." Of our Lord Jesus Christ predicted. They told you that in the last times there would be scoffers whose purpose in life is to satisfy their ungodly desires. So he concludes this section of the letter by reiterating that they shouldn't actually be surprised at the appearance of these corrupt teachers, because this eventuality is predicted by Jesus himself in the book of Matthew, and then Peter, John, and Paul in their various letters to the churches that they're writing to. And so he's basically told them that they need to get their faith in order because these corrupt teachers have come into their midst. And then he goes on in the middle section to say, okay, this is what God is going to do to these people. He doesn't say, this is what you need to do to these people. He said, God's got this. God knew they were coming and God's already let them know. They're not unaware, even though they may be corrupt. They've read the scripture as much as you. They've got to know that God has a punishment for those people. And so then the final part of his letter goes back to the first part. But instead of telling them why, he now tells them how to defend their faith. And it's interesting because throughout this letter, he doesn't focus on the corrupt teacher's theology. All we know about it is is they've come and they've used God's grace to promote immoral living. He doesn't actually say what Bible verses they've quoted to get it. He doesn't actually say how they've come to this thing. He just talks about their moral choices. And here again, he reminds the church to let their actions speak for their beliefs rather than engaging in uh, divisive arguments or diversive. Verse 20 says, But you, dear friends, must build each other up in your most holy faith. Pray in the power of the Holy Spirit and await the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will bring you eternal life. In this way, you will keep yourselves safe in God's love. And you must show mercy to those whose faith is wavering. Rescue others by snatching them from the flames of judgment. Show mercy to still others, but do so with great caution, hating the sins that contaminate their lives. Jude here is encouraging the church to show mercy to those whose faith is wavering, who aren't sure what they believe, and they've started following these corrupt teachers. He says, don't bring condemnation, bring mercy. But he's also saying, as you go out to show them mercy, make sure you're keeping yourself safe. How? By praying. By trusting in God. By actually fulfilling what God has actually told you. So, so far we've discovered that we're hearing from the brother of Jesus. We know that it's just a quick note that he's dashed off very cleverly because there's a bigger picture he wants to actually show us, but there's there's an urgent thing that needs dealing with for these people. We know that they're a Jewish community that understood the stories that he pencils in throughout this letter. We know... And I think it's freeing in a way that he doesn't just stick to biblical texts. He recognises that there's actual wisdom in Jewish texts outside the Bible and that there's some stuff in there that we can learn from. And he has that one point. He brings it to a conclusion that his main and only point is this. God's grace demands a whole life response. Just as we read in the Gospel of John in chapter 14, verse 15, loving Jesus equals obeying Jesus. If our actions don't show that we love Jesus, then our arguments never will. That is the only message of the book of Jude. Can I I get you to stand with me? Simple messages are often the best. But they're often hard for us to grasp because we, we like something to chew on. That's one of the reasons I'm no good at counselling is because people often come to me with their problems and my, my, um, my counselling technique is, is just to say, well, st- stop it. If you know know that it's harming you, stop it. Which is why I I don't get called to do it a lot. (laughs) And in some ways, this is the message of the book of Jude. He says, you've got corrupt teachers coming into your midst, and they are taking you from the lifestyle you're supposed to have to a different lifestyle. Stop it. He said, don't, because... And don't get into arguments. Notice, he didn't say here, go and, and point out the verses in the Bible that show these people how wrong they are. He doesn't say to do that. What does he say? He says, show them you are Christians by how you act. Show them that your life, your moral life, means that you trust and believe what Jesus Christ told you and you are prepared to say that you love God, but actually show it by obeying God. And, that, that's, and he's written all this mostly to encourage them and to stop them punishing people who are wavering in their faith because he's saying, look, God, God's got it under control. You can see from the Old Testament, you can see in the New Testament, we know these people are coming. God's shown them what happens to people who re- rebel against him. You don't have to punish these people. What you have to do is show them by your actions that the love of God and the obedience of, Je- from, of Jesus Christ has changed your life so that you are an example to them. And that's what we're called to do. Can I get, if you're here this morning and you lead a team in our church, whether it be a ministry team, a, a, a deacon's team, a children's team, whatever it is, can I just get you just to come out the front here quickly? Come on, quickly, run down the front. Come on, we don't, we don't have time here. We've, we've got... Okay, so everybody else, of course, is leading their team. You lazy people. I don't know what you're doing here. Delegate. <laughs> okay. Who knows that when you lead a team, one of the leadership skills you need is, is, is example. And the, and the great thing is that we actually need the power of God in our lives to actually lead a team. We can lead it through our own strength, but our own strength does not allow us to show people that love of God it actually requires the power of the Holy Spirit and it's important that as we lead people that we refresh ourselves in that can I get you just to put your hands out to these people because, not because they're, they're handsome or clever I know they're all of the above and, and good looking and, and uh, you know, godly people because above all people who lead people people who stand as an example need the power and the presence of God in their lives More than anyone. I mean, I ask that people pray more for me than anyone else because I get attacked more. The devil doesn't attack me because I'm good looking. He doesn't attack me because I'm clever. He attacks me because he knows if he can get to me, he can get to many other people. So I want you to join with me in prayer. Let's just pray the power of the Holy Spirit on these people. I just thank you, Lord, that they rely on your strength, not their own. I thank you that they constantly open themselves to the infilling of your Spirit as they lead people, as they take people into tasks that are not there for the the task's sake, but is there to actually build the kingdom of God. Let your Spirit flow, Lord. Encourage, empower, impact these people. Thank you, mighty God, that they rely on your strength, that they are speaking to you on a daily basis, that they are praying in your Spirit that they are on the altar every day to you to bring your spirit into their lives. I thank you that they open their hearts to you, that they are bringing your spirit into their lives on a daily basis. Playing keyboards doesn't escape you from that. I thank you, Lord, that the spirit of God falls daily on these people. I thank you, Lord, and I pray for the people who are over the road leading who are leading in places where we cannot see them that their voices as they speak, their actions as they move are actually being guided by your spirit in Jesus' name. Awesome. You guys can take your seats. One thing about the the book of Jude is that it highlights the fact that we can't operate as Christians without the power of God in our lives. And so I want to invite you this morning. If you're here for the first time, you're here hearing a message about the power of Jesus, about the power of the Holy Spirit in people's lives, and you don't have that in your life. You've never actually made a decision to say, Jesus, I want you to be my Lord and Saviour. I, I want to be like Jude. I want to be part of your family. I want to be a brother or a sister to Jesus because that's what we can be. If you've never had that experience of being family with our Lord and Saviour, then I want to give you an opportunity this morning. In a moment, I'm going to ask you to raise your hands so that I can see it and I'd love to pray a prayer to bring you into the family of Jesus Christ. Or you may be here this morning, you may have done that Before, you may have asked to become part of the family, but the moment you're feeling like a 14th cousin once removed on the other side of the world, you know that you're not keeping up with the the family connection that you once had with Jesus. Well, guess what? Just like the prodigal son, Jesus welcomes people back into close, intimate family relationship with him. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to ask people to close their eyes. If that's you this morning, if you want to come back to a closer relationship with Jesus, or do you just want to start a relationship with Jesus, in a moment I'm going to ask you to raise your hand so that I can see it. And then together, as a church, we will stand and pray a prayer that invites Jesus into our lives. So can I ask you just close your eyes, bow your heads. And if that's you this morning, while nobody's looking around, can I ask you just to raise your hand so that I can see it? I'll acknowledge that hand. You can put it down again. And we can pray a prayer to bring you into a relationship with Jesus Christ. Is there anyone here this morning? Awesome. Can we open our eyes and stand to our feet? was going to get us all to sing hey dude but thought perhaps not But perhaps we, let's, let's pray before we finish let's pray a prayer I've been taken into the family of Jesus repeat after me dear Lord, dear Lord from this moment on I'm yours count me as family I am following you I reject my old life I am born new as a son or a daughter of my most high God Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. Amen. Awesome. Thank you. Let's thank Pastor Chris this morning.